This is the Gathering Ottawa's Message Podcast, and this week we've got another message from our Acts of the Apostles series. For information about us, check out thegatheringottawa.com. To get connected, email info at thegatheringottawa.com. And just know that at The Gathering, we exist to connect people to the love of Jesus. So let's get right to it. from you on in just a moment. And that question is this. What might uh, be some of the idols in our culture here today? What might be some idols in our culture here today? Now, as you think about that question, I'll ask you to respond in just a moment. I want to take a moment to define the term idol. Because when we think of the word idol, we might think of what we just read in Acts 17, like shrines and golden statues and literal idols like they had there in Athens. But that's not necessarily today the kind of idols that we're tempted to worship, are they? Tim Keller defines idols this way from his book, Counterfeit Gods. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek, to, uh, you, uh, you seek to give you what God can only give. That's an idol. Oftentimes, idols are good things, right? Good things. Things like family, things like money, things like possessions. Those are good things. But those good things sometimes become ultimate things, and in a sense, we worship them as our God. Keller goes on to describe these gods. He calls them counterfeit gods. Or competing gods, small g gods in our lives. He says that it's a counterfeit god. It's anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly be worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, on it without a second thought. It could be family and children, or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim of saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, pure approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, the great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it really is idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one, Keller says, is worship. They're idols. You think of any idols in our culture Today, what might be some idols in our culture here today? Why don't you just shout out a couple at me that come to mind for you. Keller already named some for us, but as you look around at our culture here in Ottawa specifically, what do you see? What are the idols you notice around you? Hockey. Hockey. Yeah. Social media. Likes and views. Yeah, got to get those likes. Significance? Yeah. Heard someone else. Possessions. 
job, job security for, sorry? Online sports betting, yeah. That's a new thing here in Ontario, isn't it, recently? All the rage. Anything else come to mind? Political ideologies, yes. Leisure, yeah. Let's close in prayer. I think you guys nailed it. <laughs> I think you got them all. Yeah, there's lots, isn't there? I've heard it said that um, people's idols are their business cards here in Ottawa, their titles, their job title, or the letters after their names, all about their position, their title, and appearing uh, really smart or educated or successful before others. There's lots here in Ottawa, no doubt. Well, in a sense, this is some of what we see in our text here in Acts 17, don't we? They're idols. As Paul visited this historic and famous but idol-laden city of Athens, Greek city of Athens, a city that just a few hundred years earlier had been one of the most important and glorious cities in the entire known world and still at this moment was known to be a cultural and spiritual hub in the Roman Empire. Like Ottawa today, Athens was a big university town and an educational center for the Roman Empire. It also had a really unique and interesting spiritual and philosophical tradition, it had roots in Greek mythology. It was a city, Athens, named after the Greek city or Greek goddess Athena, and hundreds of years earlier had been home to some well-known ancient philosophers that we today know all about, philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle. This was a city, the city of Athens, that was dominated by non-Christian ideology and religion, including idol worship, as we see in the text. This was a city that, for Paul, no doubt he had wanted to visit one day. He wasn't from the area, but I'm sure he grew up hearing about this incredible city, kind of like for us, maybe hearing about New York City or Rome or Paris or whatever it may be. It was a city that he was excited, I'm sure, to play tourist in here in Acts 17, to spend a couple days just sort of walking around and enjoying the amazing architecture and the historical landmarks as he had some time to kill, actually. He's here in Athens waiting for his friends to join him, waiting for Silas and Timothy and others to join him who were still back in Berea as they previously had gotten Splitting up, so he had time to kill. He was probably excited to be able to enjoy Athens. And so as we look at this passage here uh, in just a moment, what we want to do is we want to look at how Paul reacted to this incredible but spiritually deceived city. Four things we want to notice. First, we want to notice what did he see? Secondly, what did he feel? What did he do? And finally, what did he say in response to it all? And as we look at those things, what did he see, feel, do, and say, we want to think as well about how his response might help to shape our response to the many idols that we notice in our culture here today. So with all that said, we're going to dive into this passage. It's a longer one. We're starting at verse 16. We start with what Paul saw. What did he see? Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, for Silas and Timothy and his crew to join him in Athens, waiting uh, they were in Berea still. He was deeply troubled by all, <clears throat> excuse me, by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. Now, what was it that Paul saw as he 
stepped off the boat in this great city. She started to walk around and take in all the views. Idols, right? Like literal shrines and statues, idols everywhere that he went, Luke tells us. This word everywhere in the Greek, it appears actually nowhere else in the New Testament nor in any other Greek literature from this time period. It's a word that conveyed the idea that the city was almost quite literally under idols or smothered and swamped by them. It was like a forest of idols. Everywhere he went, all he could see was a temple or a shrine or a statue or or an altar of some kind. For example, in the Parthenon, the Temple of Athena, stood a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena, a Greek goddess who Athens was named after, whose gleaming spear point was visible, it was said, from dozens of kilometers away. You can see a picture of her on the screen from a, from a replica uh, from a museum in Nashville. Elsewhere, throughout Athens, there were images of statu- and, and statues of Apollo, the city's patron and protector, and of Jupiter, and Venus, and Mercury, and Bacchus, and Neptune, and Diana, and others. The whole Greek pantheon was there. All the gods of Olympus. And they were beautiful. Made not only from stone and brass, but of gold and silver and marble, as they had been carefully handcrafted by the finest sculptors in all of Greece. What Paul saw as he began to walk around this incredible historic city. He saw a city smothered by idols. Beautiful idols, but idols nonetheless. And instead of being attracted to those idols or taken by their beauty and majesty, the gold, the brass, the silver, he saw them for what they were. He was not impressed by these idols. For us, I think this raises the question. We talked earlier about some of the idols in our culture in our city even, do we actually notice the idols around us day to day? Do we see them for what they are? Not literal shrines, of course, but do we see the cultural idols around us as we walk through our neighborhood, as we walk through our city, as we drive through our province, our country? Do we see the idols in our conversations with others? Do we notice them? Or are we... So just used to them that we can't even see them for what they are. We're just blinded by them. Well, that's what Paul saw. He saw the idols. Now, how did he feel about what he saw? Well, Luke tells us that he was troubled by them, deeply troubled. He says that in verse 16 still. The Greek word here for the, the word deeply troubled, it was actually originally a medical term, a term used to describe a seizure or an epileptic fit. It speaks to just how intensely Paul was provoked, horrified, really, by what it was that he saw in Athens. As he, he had like a physiological reaction to it as he witnessed the city drowning in idols, worshiping worthless idols instead of the one true living God. He was angered by what he saw. had an emotional, physiological reaction almost to what it was that he saw. It really bothered him raises another question for us. We notice the idols around us. How do we feel about them when we see them? How do we feel about the idol worship that's going on around us and maybe even in our own lives as well? Like Paul, are we troubled 
by them? Are we offended? Does it bother us? I mean, do we, do we even care at all? Does it matter to us? Paul cared. That's how he felt. He was deeply troubled, horrified, distressed by what he saw. And so then what did Paul do in response? We talked about what he saw, how he felt. Now what did he do? Well, verse 17 tells us. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now, I don't know how you would have responded if you were Paul in this moment, overwhelmed by all the idols, but it'd be very easy if you're Paul to just kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, whatever. Like, what can I do? There's too much of this evil going on around me. What can one person say or do? But he didn't do that, did he? No, you know what he did? He engaged the people of that city in dialogue around the scriptures. He proclaimed the gospel to them and invited them to turn from their idols, worthless idols, to the one true living God instead. That's what we see him doing in this text. Not throwing his hands up in despair, but engaging the culture in conversation. We see him doing that in three ways. He engages three very different types of people in this passage. First, he goes to the synagogue, as he always did. And he reasons and dialogues with the Jews and the God-fearing people in the synagogue there. He engaged the religious people in conversation around the scriptures. Secondly, Luke tells us that he spoke daily in the public square, in the marketplace, where everybody lived and worked and shopped. He just went out there. doesn't mean he was on the street corner preaching, but somehow he set up shop and was able to have conversation with passers-by about the gospel, about scripture. He engaged everyday people in conversation around the scriptures, which interestingly, Socrates was known to do some 400 years previous to this. He's kind of just following in Socrates' footsteps here. But then thirdly, Luke tells us, he also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Two contemporary but very different rival philosophical systems that were present there in Athens. With Epicureans basically believing that while the gods, plural, existed, they wanted nothing to do with mankind. These gods, they had nothing to do with creation. The world had always existed. It was eternal. They weren't involved in people's day-to-day lives. There was no such thing as divine providence. Everything was random. And there's no such thing as an afterlife. And therefore, Epicureans believed, the goal of life was to pursue pleasure and peace. Not necessarily in a hedonistic kind of way, but in a way that brings um, happiness to people in their life, goodness into people's life. Functionally, the Epicureans, they were atheists. Even though they were actually polytheists, they lived as though there was no God. And just lived each day pursuing happiness and peace to the expense of all else, just like many atheists do today. But the Stoics, on the other hand, they were, they were kind of the opposite extreme, in a sense, believing, actually, in one supreme God. They did believe in Zeus, one supreme being, but in a pantheistic kind of way, believing that Zeus was in everything and that, therefore, everything was essentially a god. And because of this, because Zeus was present in everything, in all of nature, all of creation, every person, everything, therefore, was determined by fate. Everything was pre, 
determined. Nothing was random or left to chance. And the goal of life, therefore, was to live in harmony with nature and with one another and with reason and to not be overcome by your emotion because Zeus is in control and everything's going to work out. You just got to stay to the plan, stick to the plan. These were Paul's sparring partners, the Stoics and the Epicureans, as he debated with them and their around their competing philosophical systems and how it related to the gospel and to the scriptures. Which is actually kind of remarkable. When you take a step back now and you think about Paul here engaging in three very different kinds of people, it's actually pretty incredible that one person could do that, right? He goes to the synagogue and he speaks with the religious people. He knows how to speak the religious people's language, how to connect with the Jews in the synagogue and the God-fearing Gentiles. And then he goes out to the marketplace, and he's able to engage just everyday people in conversation, spiritual conversation around the scriptures. And then he's even able to go have debates with educated philosophers, people who may have taught at the local university and schools of philosophy. He's able to engage in conversation with them and speak their language. It's remarkable how Paul, the evangelist, just knew how to speak every different person's cultural language. For us here today, while we might not be Paul and able to have maybe philosophical debates with everybody, some of us might be able to do that, but uh, we might not be able to speak religiosity, you know, Christianity too well. Maybe we're new to this. Maybe we don't know how to speak to everyday people because we work from home and we we don't know how to talk to human beings anymore. We're socially awkward. I don't know. Maybe we're not quite like Paul and don't know how to engage everybody in their language, but it, it does raise the important question for us, like how, how willing are we to engage in spiritual conversation with different kinds of people? Not just church people or religious people, but people that we work with. People in our neighborhood, everyday people. Can we speak their language? Do we understand the way that they think? Are we making an effort to connect with them, not just about hockey or about whatever else uh, maybe going on in the news or about the weather, but about spiritual things? Do we know how to speak our neighbor's language? Paul did. This is what Paul did in response to the idols that he saw and that he felt. He engaged people of all kinds in dialogue around the gospel, calling them, inviting them to turn from their worthless idols and to worship the one true living God instead. Let's look now at what he said. This takes up the majority of our passage here, so we'll spend a little more time on this one, the fourth question. What did Paul say as he engaged these different types of people? Verse 18 still tells us, when he told them, the Epicureans and Stoics, as he was debating with them, when he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, what he told them, right? He talked about the gospel, but what Jesus did, the resurrection, that Jesus was alive and well. When he told them about this, they said in response, what's this babbler trying to say with all these strange ideas that he's picked up? They're mocking him, right? Calling him a babbler. In the Greek, the word babbler here is the term seed picker. For a bird, literal sparrows and birds and crows that would come and pick up seeds or food off the ground that had been left there for them. In a sense, what they're saying is, these, these ideas that you're saying, Paul, you didn't come up with them. On your own. You're stealing from other people's ideas. You're just like an annoying bird, just 
taken what's left for you, the scraps on the ground. You're nothing more than an intellectual magpie. That's what they're saying to Paul. This is what some of the philosophers said. Epicureans probably said that because they didn't believe that God was active in the world today. So the idea of Jesus being alive and well, that's ridiculous. You're just saying what other people have said. Others said, Luke said though, that he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. New gods, perhaps. This God Jesus and this God resurrection or anastasis in the Greek, as in their confusion, they literally thought Paul was introducing some new gods for them to add to their list. The God Jesus and resurrection, two separate gods. Very confused about what Paul was actually saying here. Verse 19. So then they took him to the high council of the city. The words here, high council in the Greek, being the word aeropagus, which literally means Mars Hill, or a hill on Mars, which is a little area northwest of the temple. They didn't actually travel to Mars to meet with the council on Mars. So that would be kind of interesting. And why'd they take them here, take him, Paul, to Mars Hill? Well, probably to be accredited as a trusted teacher and voice in that community. This was a university town, remember? A town that drew more speakers and teachers than they could handle. Kind of like how Hollywood attracts wannabe actors and Nashville attracts musicians. This was Athens. Tons of voices and teachers, people on the street sharing their ideas with people who would listen. And so this council at Mars Hill, which made up about 100 people, while it actually had no legal authority there in Athens, it served as an unofficial education commission of sorts. And their approval or their endorsement was critical for any teacher in that area. If they had the approval of the Mars Hill Council, they got the thumbs up from Mars Hill, they were a trusted voice, and you should engage this person in his or her ideas. Which, as an aside, you may have heard of some churches called Mars Hill. This might be how you're familiar with that term. There were two churches, our two churches, or at least one in the state still that was quite popular. Years ago, I googled uh, where the closest Mars Hill is here, uh, from here. There's actually, because it's, it's, it's not a common name, but churches, there's one in Boston. So if you want to go check out a Mars Hill next week, you can travel down to Boston. There's one there. I don't know if it's good or whatever, but there's Mars Hills not too, too far from us here in Ottawa today. But in naming your church, Mars Hill, what you're essentially saying is, this, hey, we want to engage in the ideas that are being talked about in culture and talk about how Scripture interacts with those things. That's kind of what that name means. We see a church called Mars Hill. That's what they're kind of trying to say. Is we're, a, we're a church that's really going to talk about some of these new ideas and how Scripture interacts with that. Verse 19 still. Come and tell us about this new teaching, this council said. They loved new ideas, new teaching, right? Verse 20. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. That sound familiar <laughs> at all to you? Kind of sounds like our culture today, in, in a way, doesn't it? A culture that seems to like to chase new ideas, new teachings, new trends, new perspectives every other day. As the news cycle turns over every 24 hours or so, and there's a new idea, new concept, new teaching, new ideology, 
kind of how our culture seems to work today. Very quick to turn over different things and go on to the new thing, as opposed to being rooted in what is true and real and what is reality, right? You're on Twitter. Just go on Twitter and you'll see all about this. This is the way our world today seems to function. Very much so like the Athenians of this day. This is the city of Athens, right? A city that valued novelty and newness over truth, over what is real. So look what Paul said to them then, starting in verse 22. This is just brilliant, the way that Paul engages them with the reality, the truth of who God is. So Paul, standing before the council, he addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, he said, I noticed that you are very religious in every way. Now what's he doing here? He's complimenting them, isn't he? Instead of slamming them. <laughs> Imagine that. A lot of people who try to engage in spiritual conversations or evangelism today, they go right out of the gate by slamming their ideas. This is stupid. I can't believe you believe that. You're wrong. Paul doesn't do that. Right? He's being respectful. He's complimenting them and trying to find common ground with them, commending them in a sense for their commit- commitment to their religious beliefs, as horrified as he was by them. <laughs> he's he's uh, complimenting them. It's a good idea for us today, as we engage our culture, the conversations around Scripture, to be complimentary, respectful, like Paul was. Verse 23. See that you're religious in every way, for I was walking along, and I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. To an unknown God. A God that we think might exist, but we, we haven't found him yet. We haven't figured out who this God is as of yet. It's interesting, right? Paul, as he wandered through Athens, and as he saw and paid attention to the many idols around them and was horrified by them all, he still paid attention to them. And as he wandered through this city, he saw one in particular, to this unknown God. And he saw in that moment, as he read the inscription, he saw a cry from this culture for truth. He saw something in this culture saying, There's, there is a God out there that we don't know yet, that we, we've yet to find, we've yet to figure out who he is, but we want to know him. And Paul saw that and he said, this is my name. This is a cry from these people for truth. This is a cry for the one true living God. He engaged the culture around him. He saw, he listened to their cries for truth. Do you do that? Do we do that? Do we notice that when we watch movies? When we have conversations with people? When we read literature that isn't Christian? Do we hear the cries of our culture of people for truth? For what is real? For what is honest? They're, they're crying out. Are we hearing it? Paul heard it. He saw it. And look what he says about it in response. This God whom you worship without knowing it, Luke says, is the one I'm telling you about. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Not Zeus, right? Or Hermes or any other quote-unquote small g God. But this God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, he is the creator of the universe. Some of you Epicureans think that God's not active in creation, that Creation just always existed. God doesn't, not the God of the Bible, the one true living God. He is the creator of it all. And since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, Luke says, he doesn't, he doesn't live in man-made, temp, uh, man-made temples. 
like the many you have here in Athens. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He's the creator of the universe. He is self-sufficient. No temple or shrine or idol could ever contain him. Verse 25. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he satisfies every need. He's very engaged in his creation. He cares very much about you and about me. He's both the creator of the universe and the sustainer of the universe, giving life and breath to every little thing, Luke is saying. Verse 26, from one man, Adam, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Where unlike Zeus or any other small g, God, the God of the Bible, he's actually the one who's in control of everything. He's sovereign overall. He's the ruler of all nations. He's not passive. He's not distant. He's not disengaged. He's sovereign over all of it. Verse 27. His purpose was for the nations, for people, to seek after God and perhaps feel their way uh, towards him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Again, unlike what you Epicureans think, God is not distant and unknowable. And unlike what you Stoics think, Paul is saying, God wants us to choose to seek after him. Not everything is predetermined in life, but he is closer to us than we could ever imagine. Closer than the air that we breathe. That's what Paul is saying here. Then he says this, verse 28. For in him we live and move and exist. Or as other translations say, we live and move and have our being. Paul here, there's actually an old worship song that quotes this. And what we maybe don't realize when we sing that old song is that Paul here is actually quoting one of their own pagan poets <laughs> as he continues to speak their language, the language of the culture. He, he's referencing literature they would have known. Literature he would have disagreed with a whole lot. But he's saying, this is the one. God, the God of the Bible, is the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. He's in control. And all of life flows from and through him. There is no other God other than the God of the Bible, the one true living God. Verse 28, as some of your own other poets have said, we are his offspring. Again, he's quoting their own literature. And since we are his offspring, he's the father, right? He's intimately involved, father of all creation. Verse 29, since this is true, since he is our father and our sustainer and the creator of the universe, we shouldn't think of God as an idol de uh, designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. Because how ridiculous is that, Paul is saying, to restrict the God of all creation to a lifeless gold or silver or stone idol designed by human beings? It's absolutely absurd. He's exposing the ridiculousness of what it was that they were doing in worshiping these idols. Verse 30, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. To repent and to turn to him. Just as he commands us to do as well, by the way. To turn away from serving and worshiping worthless idols to the one true living God instead. To turn to him and away from our sins and the things that we look to that aren't him for life. Verse 31. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed 
And he proved to everyone who this man was by raising him from the dead. Talking about, of course, Jesus Christ, the creator and the sustainer and the, the one who was there at the very beginning when the world was created. The one who died and rose again as we celebrated last Sunday at Easter, conquering sin and death once and for all. This God, it is not Zeus, it is not Hermes, it is not some other small g God, but it is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God who came down to earth from heaven, taking on the form of a human being so that he could conquer sin and death and evil once and for all. That's what Paul said, using their own cultural language and literature and poets to point them to the truth. It's interesting. You notice here, Paul actually doesn't even use scripture. Kind of a rare thing to do, but for the Greeks, it wouldn't have worked to quote scripture. He had to engage with their ideas and point them to the truth. We are reminded here of an old Saint Augustine quote where he said that all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Wherever you find it, you find it in a song, in a movie, in a conversation with a friend, even in an inscription on an altar to an unknown God. All truth is God's truth. That's what Paul did here. He heard it in the literature of their own poets, saw it as he walked around that village, that city of Athens. He saw truth. He saw God's truth. He was able to point people towards that truth. It's incredible. Passage ends in verses 32 to 34, where we read this. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. We want to keep the conversation going. He was invited back. He wasn't shut down by this council. Like, we want to engage with you further in this conversation. Verse 33, that ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysus, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. It's the story of Paul at Mars Hill in Athens, a city that was drowning in idols. And as he engaged them in conversation about the truth, pointing them to the one true living God. Do you know, I think the reality is, is as much as this is an old story about an ancient city, the reality is, is that Athens still exists today, doesn't it? Not just literally, but it exists in our hearts and in our world around us. As there are idols that we worship, that are culture worships today, that Jesus would be calling us to turn away from and wanting to use us to invite others to turn away from as well. And just like Paul engaged the city with the truth of who God is, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, father of all creation, so we are invited to engage our culture our community, our friends who don't know Jesus with the truth of who God is. But it starts with us. It starts with us turning away from some of the idols in our own hearts because like every human being, we can't help when we're not worshiping the God of the universe, we can't help but worship other things. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. (laughs) We were created to worship And if our worship is not directed to the God of the universe, it will be directed elsewhere. In Athens' case, it was towards all these man-made idols and shrines. In our case, it could be success. It could be salary and income. 
money, wealth, possessions, all the things that we talked about earlier. It starts with us repenting, turning from those worthless idols to the one true God instead. And so I have two reflection questions for us to consider this morning as we wrap up. First question is this. What are some idols in your own heart that God would be inviting you to turn away from? As you think about your own life and journey with Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, is that, if that's you, what are some things that, when I talked earlier about kind of a good thing being an ultimate thing, right? Things that we find our ultimate meaning and purpose in that is not God. What are some of those things maybe in you? We all have a propensity for this. We're all drawn to worship things that are not God. So what are some idols in our own life that Jesus would be inviting us to turn away from and to worship him instead? Is it family, career, wealth, status? That's question number one. Question number two is, what are some idols in our culture? We've talked about this a little bit, but what are some idols in our culture that God is inviting others to turn away from? And what might our role be in this as well? Whereas we think about Paul in this story and what it was that he saw, felt, did, and said, what might we be called to do today as we notice the various idols in our culture, around us, in our world? It's good. You know, we're going to wrap up with a song of worship. Jesus. And let, let me just say this, you know, as we talk about idol worship, when Brenda asked the question, kind of what's our role in culture? Like, how do we actually invite people to turn away from worthless idols towards the one true living God? I think that part of the answer to that starts with what we're about to do in singing songs of praise and worship to God. The reason why we gather each and every Sunday and sing these songs to ascribe worth to God, that's what worship is, it's to ascribe worth to God. It's because our hearts throughout the week, we wander, right? We start looking at other idols, the idols that you've identified of wealth and success, popularity, status. We need to be recentered, not just weekly, but daily on the gospel. We need to ascribe worth to God, the one who alone is worthy of our praise and worship, the one who alone is great and all-powerful and sovereign over all creation, because we forget it. And so as we... Uh, focus our hearts towards the person of Jesus, towards God and what it is that he's done, um, I think God can use us. We, we are making ourselves more usable uh, to help share the good news with others and find the right words to say to others. It starts with us worshiping Jesus together, ascribing worth to him. So why don't I invite you to stand? Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing one last song of worship together as a church family, turning from idols towards the one true God instead. Jesus, that's our heart's desire. As we read this passage, we're amazed by Paul's brilliance, the way that he used him to point others to you. Um, but God, it starts with us. We want to be people who are centered and focused on you, not looking to worthless idols and other things that maybe give us a sense of meaning and purpose in the moment, but ultimately don't change anything, aren't worthy of our worship. We want to look to you, the one who is worthy of all of our praise, all of our worship of our very lives. So we surrender ourselves to you afresh this morning, declaring that you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone went to the cross on our behalf, rose from the dead so that we could be set free from the power of sin. We want to live 
in the reality of that truth. We confess that there are competing idols, counterfeit gods in our lives that, that, that pull us away from that truth. We come back to you. We say, you are worthy. We ask that you use us in conversations with coworkers, with neighbors, with friends, with family members. To find a way to direct them towards you in a loving and compassionate and respectful way. We want to be led by your spirit as we live surrendered lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning in. We're back next week with more of our Acts of the Apostles series. Don't forget to check out our website, thegatheringottawa.com, and tune in next week to the Gathering Ottawa's message podcast.